We'll be reading James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, reading through verse 12. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways." Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. You may be seated. a riddle about your life or about the events of your life that you would like to present before your Redeemer. Perhaps you're here this morning uh, under the sound of my voice in some way and you thought that being a believer indicates or is a format in some way for the absence of difficulty. You thought that having the Holy Spirit in your life is sort of like having some kind of pixie dust scattered on you. And from here on, there would not be difficulties. Perhaps you have been at times or at places situations in your life where you wondered why you lacked wisdom, why it was that you lacked insight and you couldn't see what seemed to be right in front of you. Perhaps it seemed as if other people could see all the things that you weren't able to see. Perhaps you lacked insight into what was happening in your life to you and around you. And maybe you look at your life here even this morning and you realize that you are experiencing way too much anger in your life. And you're experiencing way too much conflict in relationships or something. But you don't understand why. You know that you should be victorious in these kinds of things, in these kinds of difficulties. 
But you continue to struggle with what is your responsibility in this and what is God's responsibility and what you need to be entrusting to him. Perhaps you're wondering why the Bible seems so hard to read at times and why God is seemingly silent about things that are of utmost importance to you. I say these things and I ask these questions because the text before us here today in the book of James discusses these things. The genius of the book of James is not that this book is some kind of deep theological writing. That's Romans. But the book of James, the genius of the book of James is that it is Christianity at street level. The book of James is written about things that you and I experience. I don't need to tell you that. You'll see it when you study it. It is practical. It is things that we understand. And it is very difficult to read the book of James without being convicted. The message of the book of James is that the gospel is so expansive and so involving and so powerful that we do not need to avoid the hard issues of life. The hard issues of life are not something to run from and avoid. James indicates that we can look at the hard issues of life and we can look at it in the face. And we can deal with it. We don't have to run from the questions of life. And James is a portrait. It really truly is a portrait, a picture of the struggle of faith that every one of us can connect to in some way or another. Now, it is a matter of real significance to me and of interest to me that the first thing that James talks about in this practical shoe leather street level Christianity is the subject of difficulties. Notice in verse 2. And throughout this passage, there is no if in this passage. There's no if. <coughs> Trials are inevitable. James jumps right into this foray of discussion of trials and difficulty, and he states that believers are to count it joy when they fall into trials, when they encounter difficulties. There is no if in the passage. Our loving Heavenly Father, according to the scripture, has decided and concluded that when we receive Christ into our lives, we do not in some way or another disappear, or we do not magically enter into some sort of utopia and enter straight into glory. That's not how it works. God has decided, our Heavenly Father has decided, that when we accept Christ into our lives, when we receive the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are here for the purpose of demonstrating to humanity, to the whole world, including our brothers and sisters, 
what it looks like to deal with the things that life brings us. You see, there is a reason why you are here in this world, this fallen world. It is not a mistake, and it is not by accident. In fact, it is by intention. The Bible tells us so. I want to call attention to three words here in verse 2 that talk about trials. Three words that talk about trials. The first word is the word count. Count it all joy. And I want you to notice, again, like I've repeated, in the, especially in our introductory sermon, this is in the imperative tense. The subject is you. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The same Greek word is used several times in the book of Philippians, for example, where it talks about counting. Paul is, is talking about not counting himself to have apprehended. And yeah, numerous times in the book of Philippians and other translations here and as well as other places where this word is used, use the word consider. Or perhaps they use the word regard. It carries the idea of thinking forward. It carries the idea of looking at the bigger picture. It is actually a monetary or a financial accounting term. It is something that you use when you assess or you look at the spectrum of your data. Count it all joy. It communicates the idea of, of pressing your mind down on something accumulating the data and the facts and assessing the whole picture. You look at your child, you weigh it up, you go over it, you consider it, you measure it, even calculate it. Even though you are living in the present, you think forward. You do not only think about the present, you look at the big picture. Count it all joy. And then there's the word fall. The word fall implies encountering, or um, it gives the picture of a person going through life, and the next thing is trials, difficulty. It's just part of the process. The same word is also used in the story about the Good Samaritan, where the man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell, he encountered Thieves, thugs, who stripped him of his raiment and left him half dead, robbed him. He encountered thieves. It could be translated come into. Again, it does not necessarily imply something random. It does not necessarily imply accident. The implication here that it is something normal it is part and parcel of life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, speaks to this same idea. Actually, there's numerous verses in, in the book of 1 Peter that talk about this. Here's a, here's a familiar one. Beloved, think it not strange 
concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Consider it joy. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptation. And that's the third word. That's the word divers. It has the idea. It means different. It means various trials. And who of us knows that there are all kinds of trials that one can enter into? We're all at different stages of life. We all come from various and um, backgrounds and experiences, and that means that each of us encounters something. It may not be exactly the same, but these trials are also different in the sense that they come to us at unexpected and at various times. They mean different. It implies different in scope and different in nature. The trials of life are variegated and multicolored. We know that. While we walk from the cradle to the grave, God has the intention of bringing things into our lives that test us. And there is no promise anywhere in scripture that we will spend our lives without experiencing difficulties. In fact, it teaches us how to deal with difficulties. And I think one of the highest forms of worshiping God is dealing well with our difficulties, with the things that life brings us. How we deal with them speaks perhaps more loudly and more clearly to the world around us than any other one thing. I'm not only talking about momentary irritants when I say that, that come our way for a day or affect our schedule slightly or something like that. I'm talking about huge, life-changing things that come into our lives. How we deal with them speaks more loudly about the grace of God than any other one thing, perhaps. <clears throat> Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. And he continues right on, he says, knowing this. Some of the other translations say, because you know. And he says this with the thought that the reader knows what's coming next. The reader is not surprised by what follows. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And that word patience is just another word for steadfastness. And steadfastness is something that I've been especially attracted to as I studied this. The sovereignty of God, an understanding of the sovereignty of God, being able to embrace the sovereignty of God is so closely connected with this idea of steadfastness. The theology here is that the reader has embraced that the reader has a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God. As opposed or as compared to having myself or oneself in sovereignty. And that, I think, is one of the strongest temptations that we face. Most, most of the attempts that we make to bypass difficulty is at least at its core connected to the desire to have myself or ourself in control. 
to have some sort of self-sovereignty in our life. <clears throat> the realization here for the reader is that you don't write the story of your existence. You don't write the story of your life. God does. And it should not be surprising to us that God uses difficulty to reveal himself to us. God is in the middle of difficulty, and that should not be a surprise to you. For you know, he says, that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness, perseverance, patience, any of those words apply. <clears throat> Trials produce maturity. Now, the following verses, I, in my opinion, make this even more interesting. The teaching here is that trials are not some sort of random, haphazard fate that comes on our door at a given day. Trials are tests. He says, let patience or let steadfastness have her perfect work so that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Trials are tests. Now, when you think of the word test, a percentage of the audience here attends or goes to school. And so when you think of tests, you think of exams. I encourage you not to think of it in that way. I encourage you not to think of this word test as James gives it as an exam at school. It is not necessarily something that is where you fail or pass. The word actually is a metaphor. It reaches into the work of metals or metallurgy. Now, those of us who have had the privilege of working with metals understand that not all mild steel is exactly the same. There are numerous kinds of aluminums. There are numerous, numerous kinds and varied kinds of stainless steels. Metallurgy is an interesting work. You see, when metals are mined, or we should say when ore is mined, there's a problem with them. You don't just dig down into the earth and mine ore and use it. You have to process that ore. That's the word picture. The metal, when it is mined, has imperfections that rob the, the ore or the metal of its strength. It robs it of its imperfections. And what produces all the various kinds of stainless steels and aluminums and those sorts of things is how that ore is processed and to the extent in which it's processed. Ore, in its original state, is not particularly useful. It is not particularly beautiful. In fact, ore is not very attractive or beautiful. It would make no sense at all to mine ore and use it, try to use it in its original state. It wouldn't work. So the metallurgist knows that he must do something radical with the ore. He must put it through a process. He must add chemical agents to that process. He must apply heat to the ore. And as he applies heat, 
and the chemicals, the chemical agents, that ore liquefies. And the process of liquefying causes it to be soft and pliable. What's more, the imperfections boil out of that product. And when the imperfections are boiled out of the ore, then and only then is the metal usable and beautiful. Only as it is liquefied can it be molded into something that is worth something, that can be applied to various and all situations that it encounters, um, that it becomes. The metal, the processed metal, has a much higher state of strength. It has a much higher state of beauty. And that's what James is talking about here. That's the process that the Bible at various other points and various other places refers to and talks about. The experiences of life, the tests of life, are for the purpose of refinement. It's not so much passing or failing, like a school exam, as it is a process of refinement. These trials that God ordains to bring into our life are for the purpose of refinement, for the purpose of beautification. Trials and tests are for the purpose of highlighting a particular message in your life. And God has a particular message that he has in mind to highlight in your life. Believe me, brother or sister, God has a message that he wants to highlight in your life. And God sovereignly brings things into our lives that gives us the opportunity to show that beauty and that strength. The message here in the text is that we should not resist the process. Are you resisting? Don't. Think of your week this past week. You didn't always think the right thing. You didn't always say the right thing, did you? You didn't always do the right thing. In a variety of ways, we are all express, we, we all, th throughout this past week, we expressed our constant need of refinement. No, nobody, from the cradle to the grave, ever gets to the place where the refinement is complete, where the, where the refinement is Total. It's a process through which we expend all of our life in. James names it patience, steadfastness, perseverance. In all these variety of ways that we express our need for refinement, along with that, our mindset has to be that we, need, we are continually in this process, in this need of refinement. And God's grace is the object of it all. It is meant to produce something specific in us and to us, as well as to other people. And that is steadfastness. That is patience. <clears throat> when the word patience is used in the Bible, 
It is not talking about some passive acceptance of circumstances where it's just like, well, whatever. That's not really the picture at all. The word denotes a fixed direction. It denotes a firmness of purpose. Firmness of purpose, fixed direction. When it talks about patience, that's what it's talking about. It's not something passive. It's something much more intentional, much more uh, intentional than that. Not something passive where we just shrug our shoulders and we say, oh, whatever. Patience has the idea of endurance, steadfastness, remaining on the course, on the path. So what is the purpose that God has entrusted to us? What is the purpose? Well, I've already talked about that somewhat. He has a message that he wants to highlight in your life and in mine. And so when we enter into that purpose, when it is a way for God's kingdom message to be highlighted, to be amplified to the world, we become part of his agenda. And we become part of the greater story when we do that to be a part of the message of grace that God has intended for all who come to him, as well as in contact with us. We've heard, we've heard it, haven't we, that we often are the hands and the feet. The best impression that people have of Jesus is what they see in us, his children. <clears throat> that means... If we are steadfast, if we're enduring, if we're patient, as the, word, the King James uses, that means that I have a reason for speaking a certain way. It means that I have a reason for conducting relationships in a certain way. It means that I have a reason for spending money in a certain way. I have a reason for using time and energy in a certain way. I have a reason for thinking certain things and desiring certain things and doing, doing certain things. This fixation of purpose and direction, steadfastness, should color every area of our lives. Every practical aspect of my life should be colored by this focus, firmness of purpose and direction. When I put steadfastness into this, into this call, it means that I do not abandon that direction. It means that I do not turn away from that purpose. I do not forsake that purpose. Even when things are difficult, even when it's hard to focus on that direction, I follow that direction anyway, maybe in smaller steps, but I'm still turned toward that focus and that direction. This means that patience or that steadfastness is the key to every other sort of blessing, I believe. The key to having no gaps of completeness, as he talks about that we would be perfect or complete, mature is the word that we often use, that would apply in this situation. Wanting nothing, there's no gaps. 
And that's what we all want. And it's in direct connection with how we deal with the difficulties that come in our lives. Those gaps are in direct connection with how we deal with the difficulties that come in our lives. And that is particularly true. Are you ready for this? That is especially true when life comes to me in uncomfortable ways. Uncomfortable forms come to me and how I deal with that area of discomfort. The principle of trials and testing. The principle of trials and testing is that God will take you. God is willing to take you where you would not have gone in order to produce something in you that you could not have achieved on your own. The principle of trials and testing is that God will take you where you would not have gone in order to produce something in you that you could not have achieved on your own. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. This verse speaks of the unrelenting nature of our Redeemer. And as I studied this this week, especially yesterday, I was really struck with the thought about how strongly redemption is tied into this story of difficulty. And how hard we work to avoid any and all difficulty. And how we work to bypass and go around it and to run from difficulty. And in doing so, we run from the story of redemption. We run from the possibility of, rede of redemption taking place in our lives. We run from the opportunity to become better people. It's kind of sobering. But the nature of our Redeemer is that God does not quit. We do. But God does not quit. He continues to bring things into our lives that give us the opportunity to be drawn to him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? And you know, there is coming a day where we will stand before him and we will lack no good thing, the Bible teaches. We'll be complete. We're not there yet. I didn't have to tell you that, did I? But we're not there yet. And so it calls for steadfastness, fixed direction, firmness of purpose, where we are right now, right here, going forward. Fixed direction, firmness of purpose. Trials are inevitable. Trials produce maturity. Trials also produce dependence on God. Look at verse 5 and following. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith and following. We'll talk about that more when we get there. <clears throat> the principle that trials produce dependence on God. Trials drive us to depend on something or someone beyond ourselves. And that, again, is the purpose and plan of God. You remember that one of the first 
temptations to Adam and Eve was the idea of self-sovereignty. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was beautiful, and what was the next thing? That it was desirable to make her wise. We have this built-in sense of desire for wisdom. The problem is we look for wisdom that comes from ourselves. Selfishness, self-sovereignty. So many times, the biggest, the biggest challenge to our salvation is us. And trials are meant to drive you beyond you. And that's what God is seeking to do. By bringing trials into our lives, he's pushing us to seek him, to seek something bigger and broader, something more powerful than me, than you. Trials are given to release you from the bondage of self-reliance. And the thing we need to remember in all of this is that it is not our weakness that keeps us from our Lord. It is not our weakness that keeps us from God. But our illusion of strength is what keeps us from God. When we think we're strong, when we think we're holy, when we think we have it together. If any of you, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, that's James' style of saying that every one of us lacks wisdom. We all lack wisdom. We don't have it. It indicates that every one of us lack, need, wisdom. So, as we look at this verse, in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, don't think about the person sitting beside you. Don't think about your spouse, or your child, or your neighbor down the street, or anything like that. The implication is that I lack wisdom. We all lack wisdom. The scariest foolishness in our life is mine, my foolishness. The scariest foolishness in my life is mine, the foolishness that is inside of me. And for that, we need to ask God for wisdom. Notice that he gives several characteristics here in these verses about God. It talks there in connection with God giving us wisdom. We come to God and ask for wisdom, and he gives us wisdom. God's character is talked about in three different ways. First of all, we see that God is good. It says that he giveth. God gives. And it's a, test, it's a testament to the, the character of God. He is good. And then we see that God is generous. It says that he gives to all who seek him liberally or generously. It has the idea of stretching out. The word picture is like a large table full of food. There's a lot more there than you can ever cons consume in, in one setting. His table of wisdom. Another thought with the word liberally is the idea of singly. Again, this idea of focus as compared to the wavering man in verses 6, 7, and 8. God doesn't waver. He gives us for a specific purpose, and there's much more of it than we actually need. God is generous. The third characteristic here is that he is gracious. He does not abrade, it says. 
He does not reproach those who come to him for help. It is not something that undoes him when we come and ask. It is not annoying to him. He doesn't mock you for your need of wisdom. He doesn't throw your need or your failure or your lack of wisdom in your face. He doesn't keep account of the times where you come and ask. He doesn't play favorites. He just says, if you need it, come ask and I'll give. Come and I'll give. That's the, that's the promise. God is gracious. Isn't it amazing that in the face, in the face of our foolishness, God generously and adequately gives what we actually need, not what we think we need. He is not swayed by our selfish requests that are often completely lacking or devoid of wisdom, but he gives us what we actually need and what actually highlights the message that he has intended for our lives. What is this thing, wisdom? What is wisdom? What is it that we're to ask for? What is it that we lack, according to this passage? Well, it's been said that wisdom is an understanding into how things actually work. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's the ability to use experience and knowledge and bring it together. That is wisdom. And I think many times we also need to remember that wisdom is not so much a thing as it is a person. Wisdom is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is wisdom, interchangeably. And when you read the book of Proverbs, for example, you can, you can interchange the word wisdom and Jesus, and it'll, tell, it'll give the same message. Wisdom is not only some sort of practical direction, some sort of practical application, but it is a knowledge of Jesus who is wisdom. <clears throat> wisdom is being able to look at life from God's perspective. So he goes on then in verses 6 to 8 and gives some very interesting teaching on wavering, double-mindedness, Dualism is the word that I used previously. You see, in all of us, there is this conflicting set of intellectual standards, this conflicting set of desires. We have it as long as we're in the flesh. Most of us, and I would say probably every single one of us that are here this morning, the fact that you're here indicates that you have at least a little bit of desire to do what's right. You came here to fellowship you came here to hear the teaching. You came here to hear the preaching because you have at least a little bit of desire to follow God and to do what's right. We want the wisdom of God. We're just kind of naturally wired that way. But at the same time, we also want our own way. At the same time, I sort of want to self-govern, to self-decide, to, self, to be self-sovereign in my life. And that's because we love us. And we have this wonderful plan for our lives, don't we? What the scripture is teaching here is that God has no commitment whatsoever to give us the things that we want, to make our purposes work. God is not driven 
He's not inclined that way to make our purposes work. But God's wisdom is kingdom wisdom, and it is designed for those who are willing to seek him. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now in verses 9 to 11, the next question, how should I view material trials? How should I view material trials? The truth about trials is that trials bring equality. In verses 9 to 11, it says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Here we have teaching on how we should view trials in light of our possessions, earthly things. You know, one of the most difficult things physically about maturity is the weaning that goes with it. For instance, a baby who is being weaned thinks that his mother doesn't like him. He feels completely out of his comfort zone. We, even as older people, especially dislike when something is taken away from us. And it produces a deep insecurity in us. And earthly possessions fit into that category totally. When something is taken away from us, it makes us feel unbelievably vulnerable. It makes us feel that the people around us don't like us. They must not care about us. In fact, maybe God doesn't even love us. But for a child, in a physical sense, it is a step toward maturity. And we should not think at all that it is any different in the spiritual sense. Sometimes God brings trials to wean us of our dependence on things, things that we own, things that we wish we did own. And James applies this principle to two different situations. The situation that James uses to apply applies is to the person who has a lot or to the person who has little. And he says it's actually the same. A person with little or a person with lot with a lot needs to do the same thing with the trial. Trials should help us focus on what is important so that important things actually are important. That we keep important things important. 
Trials should keep important things important rather than elevating things of unimportance in our lives. And trials cause us to do that. It produces an equality in our thinking. When trials come to a poor person, the poor person is to let God have his way and rejoice that he possesses spiritual blessings that, are, that far exceed anything materially. On the other side of the coin, when a rich person loses material possessions, he is to do exactly the same thing. He is to let God have his way, and he is to rejoice that he has spiritual blessings that far exceed anything that he owns or could own materially. The instruction is the same. Another way of summarizing this section is that it is not material blessings that guide a person through trials, but it is the spiritual blessings that guide a person through trials. When a person goes through trials of whatever sort it is, but especially of material trials, and I think this especially applies to material trials, and can can stand back from that trial and say, I am rich. That's the challenge. Because our riches are not based on how much we own here on earth. Our riches are based on what we own spiritually because of what God has promised to us and what God is to us inwardly. These verses teach me that just like the beautiful parts of creation fade, in that same way, I am fading and will one day fade and disappear from the earth. Material possessions do not guide us through trials. It is what is inside of us that actually guides us. Our riches are determined on what we are inwardly, not based on what we own. And trials bring equality. Trials also bring reward. Now, it is really worth it. It really is worth it to continue to trust and obey. It is, it is so worth it to, to be steadfast. Someone has said that obedience and submission are the path, are the tracks for wisdom. Obedience and submission to God. Yes, it is worth it. Verse 12, blessed is the man that endureth, that is steadfast. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Trials bring reward. What is steadfastness? Remember we talked about this? Fixed direction, firmness of purpose, The principle of trials and testing is that God will take you. He is willing to take you where you would not have gone in order to produce something in you that you could not have achieved on your own. That's the purpose of trials. And that brings tremendous reward, according to the text. Here in the text, James comes with the thought that at the end of life, there is a crown 
a crown. The Greek word actually is the word Stephanus. And it's a picture of the Olympic wreath that is still in use today. It is the, the, the gift, it is the, the distinction that is placed on you when you finish the course, when you finish what you have been trained by God to do. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he has been approved, when he has been recognized, he's going to receive the Stephanus, the crown of life. Jesus also promised the reward to those who are faithful under persecution. In Matthew 5, verses 10 and 12, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The reward that James promises here is the crown of life. That word is also used to Stephanus, is used to describe the crown that was placed on Jesus' head at his crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 27 and Mark 15 and John 19, Paul refers metaphorically to this crown in, in Philippians and in 1 Thessalonians. He refers to the Thessalonians, Paul does, as his crown and joy, the Stephanus. Writing to Timothy, Paul describes the future reward that he will one day receive as the crown of righteousness, the Stephanus, the recognition of having finished the course. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, called it the crown of glory that does not fade away, the Stephanus. The Apostle John called it the crown of life in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, it indicates that those of us those who are at the great ceremony of worship in heaven will have crowns, will have Stephanus. And will cast those crowns, our crowns, at Jesus' feet. It is so hard to think like this. It is so hard for me to think like this. You know, everything that we experience in life is going to completely pale to the picture that we'll have in eternity. I can't think like that. In the, in the flesh, it just, I don't know. I, I just, I'm just not able to do it somehow. But you see, the text tells us there is an eternity. And that means that what we see today and what we've experienced even in the course of our life pales in relation to the bigger picture. The struggle is worth it, my brother, my sister. There is an eternity. If there is an eternity, or since there is an eternity, your investment in obedience and submission to the plan of God is worth it. It's the best investment you could ever make. <clears throat> now, one can't study the book of James without being convicted. And that's true for me. So this week, as I studied, in the past weeks as I prepared for this sermon, here's some lessons to be learned. 
Number one, the theology from this lesson here in James, from this text in James, is that we are not to ever separate our Savior from our trials. We are not to ever separate our Savior from our trials. The theology of Scripture does not allow us to do that. The connection of redemption and connection with our trials is so strong. The Bible teaches that God is in careful control of all the details that we experience in life. Every one of them are under his watch. And if we don't have a biblical view of that, we do not have a biblical view of redemption. Maybe I should say it this way. If I don't have a biblical view of that, I don't have a biblical view of redemption. We are never, ever to separate our Savior from our trials. <clears throat> Our attempt to do that is to somehow place us. When I attempt to do that is an attempt for me to place myself in a position of sovereignty. And it places God outside of my situation, outside of my trial. And so if we run away from trouble, if we try to escape difficulties of whatever sort they may be, we are actually missing God. <clears throat> Number two, our one hope in life is not that someday we'll get it right. That's not the primary aim or goal of, my, of our lives. It should not be of our lives. Our hope, our one hope, our one goal in life is not that one day we won't need anything from someone or something. Our one hope is not that someday we'll reach a level of righteousness or holiness, that grace won't be necessary anymore. Our one goal is not somehow to be filled in some sort of way that we won't need spiritual growth anymore. That's not our one goal in life. Our hope in life is not that we'll grow to a place where we won't need to seek wisdom anymore. But our one hope in life needs to be the one thing, and that is the character of a generous God. And the promise here in this text is just pretty clear that when we come, he gives. When we come, he gives. When we come, he gives. When we come, He gives.
And then finally, as I studied this week, I was reminded of how hard it is to read and study the book of James without being convicted. And I can see how so many times I'm the wavering one. How much disloyalty and wavering is inside of me. And the desire within me to take my own way and to place myself in a position of sovereignty instead of God. I'm directly many times going against the wisdom that God wants to give me. Wisdom, like I said earlier, wisdom runs on the rails of submission and obedience. And that fact causes me to miss wisdom because I don't want to submit. I don't want to obey in the flesh. It's a spiritual grace that I need to find and use in my lives, in my life. And it causes me to miss God's wisdom. The thing is that God gives us trials to deliver us from ourselves. God gives us trials to give us an opportunity or a chance to take myself off the throne of my life, to allow him to be sovereign instead of me to be self-sovereign. And God pushes us further than we are able to go while simultaneously depending on ourselves. We find ourselves out of control of a certain situation, no control whatsoever of what happens. And we're given the option of finding help that can only be found in him, only be found in him. You know, God is not concerned about making us comfortable. Nowhere in the pages of scripture will you find that God is at all concerned in making me comfortable. But he is concerned about making me holy. God is very interested in my holiness and my growth and my maturity. And he is much more concerned than he is in my personal comfort. I don't know about you, but I am intensely reminded of my need of Jesus Christ in my life and my need for wisdom and my need to have him sovereign and Lord of my life. And that is my prayer. And I trust that is the prayer of every one of us.